0: Welcome to the Crypto Podcast. You can find all our episodes on the CryptoPodcast.org. We're also on YouTube and you find the links in the podcast description. I've got four other podcasts, the Speaking Podcast, the Meditation, Learn Polish, and the Awakening exposing Fraud and Corruption, but with Solutions, as well as being a podcasting coach. You'll find everything on bio.link forward slash podcaster. My guest today, I'm looking forward to this. It's an interesting topic. I would say a serial entrepreneur based on what I've researched but he's the ceo of mining store which designs builds and operates large-scale cryptocurrency mining data centers please welcome jp Barrick.
1: thanks for having me i'm excited to be here today and to chat about the world of bitcoin mining
0: yes i mean i've mentioned ceo but you might just let the listeners know a little bit more about jp
1: Yeah, so I got into Bitcoin uh, mining in 2016. Um, I dropped out of college. I was going to NC State for computer science and just started building and learning more about the energy industry, about Bitcoin as a whole, and about how those two come together. And that led me to building out more data centers in Iowa. Um, I love to slackline and ski and spend time hanging out with friends, but I'm not working on collecting Bitcoin and, and mining Bitcoin. Brilliant, brilliant. And
0: I mean, you've you've started early in the in the the Bitcoin, but uh, I think you were uh, early as being an entrepreneur as well, fifteen in the robotics camp.
1: Yeah, so my first kind of foray was actually selling some strawberries to local neighbors. and then the real business was a robotics camp. My team, I was in something called First Lego League, where we built these Lego robotics. And my team won first place in North Carolina where I was growing up. And we I decided, wow, what, what a great way to like make some money, but to use this as an advertising on our marketing. If you know, we placed first in North Carolina and invited people and they came and they ended up learning how to build robots in my friend's parents' basement. And so that was the first time I realized, wow, I can, you know. Don't have to go work for fifteen dollars an hour but I can have every kid parent pay me fifteen dollars an hour and have 10 or 15 kids at a camp and really you know exchange my time for more dollars than than just if I went and got a normal job.
0: Brilliant. that's fantastic at such a young age It was a great thing to learn and I'm really
1: it was glad I did that because then it put me on my journey to take risks and try new things and and build the business I have today.
0: Brilliant. So like you mentioned, uh, I think uh, 2016, for the crypto, but like, was it prior prior to that, you even heard about crypto and you, what was your full journey into crypto?
1: Yeah. So for me, I got into Bitcoin in 2013 by reading an article on TechCrunch. And I was like, what is this form of money that is not connected to the government and it solves this Byzantine generals problem. So I was kind of still a little you know, interested. I couldn't figure out how to buy it. So when I saw it the first time, I didn't get to buy it, like a lot of people on Bitcoin. And then after I saw it the second time, I was like, okay, I need to figure this out. And so I had the money from the robotics camp. I wasn't eighteen. I was like fourteen or thirteen at the time, very young, and I had to go to my mom and be like, "Hey, I need to borrow your passport and use it, an, make an account on Mt. Gox." So uh, we opened up an account on Mt. Gox together way back in the day, the, one of the first major Bitcoin exchanges, and uh, sent wire a wire over there. My first wire uh, through this company called Dwolla, called which was how you could send money over there, and yeah, bought seven, 10 Bitcoins, and then was just like, this is crazy, you know, I own Bitcoin, what can I do with it, you know, started buying socks and shoes, and eventually bought a laptop and, uh, and, and traded with it, and then kind of realized the benefits and the advantages of using the Bitcoin network um, in the mining process, you know, that was the, the educational journey for me. Uh, but it all started with just one TechCrunch article and the idea that money separated from state could be so powerful.
0: Brilliant. And you didn't get caught with Mt. Gox like some of the investors you were after taking it out, I presume.
1: Yeah, for me, thankfully, I was just so active in the space that I kind of knew that something was up early on. And so I was able to get my money out very quickly just because, you know, every day I would wake up and I would do Bitcoin. I would trade. I would spend time on Bitcoin forums. So I wasn't one of those investors who uh, wasn't as active and just had money sitting on the exchange. So thankfully, right when I heard some bad news. I got my money off.
0: And I suppose with the the wallets now and the exchanges which kind of ones would you recommend? Ooh,
1: that's a great question. So I personally use Kraken for as a US uh trader just cuz I love Jesse's ethos the CEO. Um I've also suggest, you know, Uniswap for 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 when it goes to decentralized and trying to uh, a trade there um i use swan bitcoin they're pretty good but now they've had some issues with their with prime i think or Fireblocks and, and and buying and buying bitcoin but kraken is my go-to exchange uh for now
0: brilliant, brilliant. so i suppose let's let's get into the mining because you know i've heard a lot about the mining it was good it was bad to get into you know people were making a lot of money then the processing costs were going up and then it was the wrong time so I mean, obviously, you've seen the roller coaster, you know, going through this whole since you're in it at a very early stage.
1: Yeah, so I mean, mining is this complicated slash simple process. At the end of the day, we're just using electricity to do hash functions to mine new cryptocurrencies. So I've mined Ethereum, Dogecoin, Monero, Bitcoin. And when you're running these facilities, we're you're you're deploying these mining machines and trying to just extract the heat from the facility at scale. And so for me, the mining process has always been a journey about anyone can do it. It doesn't matter if you're a company, a nation state or an individual. When I got my first Ethereum miner, um, it was in a, like a shoebox almost, or like a milk crate. And you had the, the GPU set up on it and all connected to one motherboard. And I was running into my parents' basement and it was, you know, create a lot of heat and noise. And that was the epicenter of the journey of the start of my journey into mining. And from there, we installed like a whole new circuit to the house and built a, a shed in the backyard where I could run more machines and then eventually moved out of the house into other spots in North Carolina. Uh, and so that's, that's my, part of my journey, but at the end of the day, it's always been about getting other people to learn about mining, to understand that they have the same level of like competitiveness as those, you know, other individuals or as a company does, and they can compete. It doesn't matter how big you are. You can still make money mining because you can join a mining pool and get similar rewards to a large miner.
0: Brilliant. And like, you mentioned the noise and I've heard about that. Are the newer machines quieter? And also because I've when I was studying like decibels, like if it's 90 decibels for 15 minutes, it can damage your ears. So if those people working in that environment, how are they protected?
1: Great questions. So, you know, machines are about a hundred decibels right where you're next to them. And that definitely can damage your ears. And it's actually damaged mine over. The years in the facility, you know, you don't really realize it. it's a small little intake. But then when you get older, you're like, oh, crap, my hearing maybe isn't as good now that I've been in a Bitcoin mine, you know, for 10 years of my life working close to them and in them. But our technicians at our facilities, they do have uh, 3M, you know, ear protection where they can actually play music and and listen to songs and and keep the you know other noise out. Um, but that's how you protect yourself. And no, they haven't gotten quieter. They've, they've kind of stayed the same. The reason being is because they're really concerned about just withdrawing the heat. And that's their main concern. They're not concerned about, uh, you know, the noise as much. The manufacturer wants to make sure that these things run effectively and efficiently.
0: And with like the warehouses are that, because I think you built about 10, do you have like all air conditioning units to keep the temperature down or is the heat that's gained, are you actually able to monetize that?
1: Great question. So we're not using any air conditioning, but just using passive cooling. And the heat that is gained is, it's it's, it's just exhausted. We've looked at, okay, how do we dry corn? You know, Because we're in Iowa with a lot of our facilities now. How do we dry soybeans? How do we grow microgreens? And we realized that it just isn't a viable solution for someone like ourselves in the business of cryptocurrency mining without access to really bank capital to go and invest into infrastructure for other things for the heat to be used for. Um, If you can find a partner who has bank financing that has a business plan that has done it before, that that's their main business is like growing microgreens, for example, then I think it'd be worth it. But with only a limited amount of time and, and availability to deploy infrastructure, we focus on just deploying new facilities rather than figuring out how we can use the heat from existing facilities.
0: Because like I've seen on your site, you've got so many different units and everything. So I presume just my assumption like that, you can either buy the units or you actually manage them. So when somebody purchases, you actually take, you know, look after everything and obviously charge a fee for that minus electricity and uh, profit sharing or something like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So we have a few different ways to, to, to work with clients. One of them is uh, the $100 and down. It's called BitVault and it allows customers to enter in to a mining reg CF. That's regulated crowdfunding. So in the United States, you know, if you're selling a portion of a machine, it's a security. Oh, we saw that with cloud hashing contracts and other types of mining contracts. And so what we did is we went in and we said, okay, what's the security process on how you can legally sell a security in the United States and solicit it online through social media that is called reg CF. And so we decided, okay, we're going to build these mining companies where we'll work with influencers. They work with their fans, they tell them about the benefits of Bitcoin mining on the grid, the benefits of mining in the in you know an economic sense and helping Bitcoin and then the potential profit. And so they buy a share of a company that buys Bitcoin miners and then just runs those miners for a set time period and returns capital. So that's one set of investors. And over the years, I've always wanted to democratize and decentralize Bitcoin mining, but it was really hard to get it the price down. You know, one miner themselves sometimes costs over $10,000. And that puts it outside the reach of most consumers. And so we developed that program for those type of people. And then the second program we have is something called Manage Mining, which you mentioned is that profit sharing program where the customer buys the machines, we lease the machines from the client, and then we take a fee just like a mining pool that's based on the profit or revenue generated from Bitcoin mining. Now, this program is a white glove program, so it's really nice because you don't have any power bills. You're not going to be able to run machines and have them not be profitable where well, you can't pay your power bill because the power bill is taken out of the profits every month. You don't have to pay for components. You don't have to source components really for the investor. It's um white glove and it's it's off You know, easy to do. That was the intention there in the contract. You're not going to get screwed compared to hosting, which we also do for larger clients. That's more traditional. And they can potentially if they if they mine Bitcoin and they don't have enough Bitcoin at the end of the day and the power bill is too high, they have to still pay that power bill for months and months on end. And so you're kind of locked into this contract, and there's a lot of volatility depending on the price of the equipment you bought and your debt, and depending on the cost of that energy, you could be in a situation where you don't have enough money to pay the power bill. So we have minimal hosting contracts, but they're usually people that are traditionally love hosting. And then our last one, our last program we have is our build a mine program, which is focused on family offices and large hedge funds that want to own the underlying land and infrastructure, the containers, the switchgear, the transformers that run and host the mining facility along with the miners themselves. And then we work with them over a long five or 10 year period to run the site for them. So I tried to, we try to make it, you know, at every single level, be able to meet someone and say, this is the best option for you to get into mining. Now, obviously, the person at $5 million is going to have a, a less of a fee structure than the person at $100,000. Uh, but the goal is and the intention is to let everyone get into Bitcoin mining through a way that they understand, OK, this is what I'm getting. This is the fee structure. It's clear. It's transparent. And this is how I can get exposure uh, to mining Bitcoin.
0: And when you have, say, like a greenfield site then and you're building out, what's the kind of duration it takes before you're actually up and running that's a great question so for
1: us the duration is about two months two to three months for a containerized site so the land it takes about two months to get the land zoned permitted and um, ready to go effectively then from there once it's zoned and permitted it's another two months to build it so after the land is ready to go it's we go out we do all the groundwork we make sure it's flat we have our civil engineering work already done from there we lay our concrete dig our underground wires run the wires with electricians and then we place down our containers mining containers connect them together uh, switch gear transformers connect it all together with electricians and then we bring in all the machines and start stacking them racking them running all the cables you know wires everywhere and in each one of these facilities Um, they can hold about 2,500 machines for one of our five megawatt facilities. And then we have other bigger ones that are like nine megawatts, which can host 4,000 plus 4,800 machines. And so that's a lot of equipment that people have to go plug in, unbox, put the box away, make sure it's running, configure the machine. And so there's a checklist of maybe, you know, 200 different things that we need to do to build one of these sites, but, the team does a great job. And like I said that it takes two to three months to put it up. And once it's up, they move on to the next site and they start building the next one. So we have a deployment team and then we have teams that run each operation. And so there's new operation uh, technicians. They get trained at our main facility for two weeks and then they move to this facility wherever that one, the new one is. And then they start working there. Usually two to three people per
0: facility is how many we hire. Excellent. Excellent. And... Is it possible because like I've kind of exposed, you know, life investments and pensions and stuff like that, that, you know, people put money in all their life, assuming it to be good. But the reality is, is not. Is there any way that people can actually have their pension fund go into this?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. So I don't, I'm not as familiar with the traditional 401k atmosphere in finance. I would say that the way you can get exposure to Bitcoin mining is through, you know, probably through a public company if they're if you can buy a stock. The problem with buying a public mining company is that you don't have any say on the executive expenses and the expenses to run the business. So, for example, like Core Scientific last year was the company with the highest cost of private jet usage out of any private company. And they're a Bitcoin mining company. And so you're like, As a shareholder, is this really how I want my money to be spent? But, you know, that is a route to go the public company route. But I'm unsure if there's another way to get your pension to get Bitcoin mining exposure. But I think if you can get Bitcoin exposure with it, you know, that's a win. Because then you can get hopefully around the fees and you can get that uh, parabolic rise in price and really protect yourself from inflation and from this government money printing problem we have.
0: Speaking of uh, government, then your thoughts on kind of regulation because I mean we've all heard of FTX and Gary Gensler and MIT and all the connections around. I mean it must have hurt, I don't know, did it hurt G, but like it hurt the industry. But like what's your thoughts on kind of regulation based on what's been happening?
1: Yeah. So I think that there is there there is regulation that has already come in and, and happened. And since I've been in Bitcoin, we regulated the dollar to Bitcoin uh, bridge. So when you ever transfer dollars to Bitcoin, it is almost impossible now to buy Bitcoin without giving your ID, your identification away, your KYC. And so I do believe that that regulation is sturdy. When it comes to additional regulation of exchanges, of, um, you know, of these, these counterparties that sit in the middle, that hold your digital assets. Texas, where I live, they passed a law. Um, I, I don't know if it's all the way passed or if it's just passed the house, but they passed a law that said, if you're a crypto exchange, you have to submit a proof of reserve that shows that you have a hundred percent reserves of your clients' Bitcoin in order to do a business in this state. I th- think that is um, is helpful regulation. You know, we don't want um, people running exchanges that are are not fully hundred percent custodied, self cust or not self custodied but reserve backed. We don't want them running fractional reserve exchanges. That's really bad in the crypto space, as we've seen with FTX. When it comes to mining Bitcoin. You know, you play in the physical infrastructure world, the energy world, more than we play in the securities and uh, licensing, money transmitting world, because we're building physical data centers, running computers and servers. And so I don't necessarily know if there's regulation that needs to go after miners per se, um, for you know, KYC, for anything there, because you are simply running a computer program. And the way I view it as a US citizen is that by running these Bitcoin miners, you are expressing Speech. So this is a freedom of speech expression. You're running software. You're running code on a computer that's running it on, on behalf of you as the individual, and that you should be able to express whatever speech you desire through this computer. Um, you know, and and that's Bitcoin uh, mining is a speech that you know I think uh, as a miner you're expressing, and so I think that that is protected. You know, in the Constitution, and that should be not regulated, and you shouldn't have to have a license to express. Uh, to run this computer program, or a license to have to use electricity, because we once we start to say, "Oh, you need extra special licenses to use electricity," well, that's one of the core, uh, you know, day-to-day assets or or b- building blocks of life. And now you're kind of regulating this uh, this industry. That I guess that would be a first. No one's ever said. You know, you need a license to use electricity for your refrigerator because you have a, a because you have this type of meat in it or something. And and that's kind of where we would be going uh, towards. So I think it's a reg- regulate the exchanges, regulate the places where the Bitcoin sits. But the miners, I don't think they need much more regulation.
0: And like re- regarding the electricity then, because. I mean, that whole industry is fraudulent and they're pretending all the costs going through the roof and they buy it in bulk and pennies of what's being charged. Like it's scary what they're actually buying it in bulk. Not sure when you've got such a big usage, can you actually tap into that instead of, but I know that you use uh, some of the green energy as well from kind of the turbines and stuff like that. Yeah. So
1: we we are grid connected at our facilities. And so we do have to deal with. The utilities regulation and yes, if we're talking about regulation, that's a good one to go look at. The problem is it's so mo- monolithic, and it's been around, and it's so uh, who do I know, buddy, buddy type of relationships. But um, yeah, the the energy industry is is one that is very, very, very opaque, opaque, and it's uh, will I'll chat a little bit more about how it's structured in the U.S. So in the U.S., we have uh cooperatives we work with these are local rural electric cooperatives that were came out in 1940 and the reason why they existed then was because the federal government said hey electricity is important for everyone's lives we want to make sure that everyone in the rural areas where it doesn't make sense for investor owned utilities to go out and build energy infrastructure actually get electricity so they gave really cheap loans to these companies that are called cooperatives which are supposed to be a group of members in the community that come together to run this company that's a non-for-profit that then pays something called patronage money back to people um, that is returned or that is made in profit effectively to its members. And so that's a local cooperative. Then they all, instead of running their own business and buying from the market, most of those cooperatives actually gave away their rights To someone called a distribution cooperative which owns the transmission lines and the electric lines and that's where you start to get into the next layer of let's just say fun uh when it comes to the pricing because now it's like oh yeah the line we have you have to pay us this much money to use the line and you're like what? Why are we? Why are we paying this absurd fee to use the line? We use it every day. You know this is ridiculous. And so, anyway, they manage the lines. They manage the scheduling, the dispatching of energy. They bid your energy in the market for all these smaller cooperatives, and then they actually feed up into a much larger cooperative. And for us, that's Basin Electric. Basin Electric is, owns nine percent of all of the energy consumption in the SPP, which is the Southwest Power Pool around the Midwest region. And Basin Electric is owned by Warren Buffett in Berkshire Hathaway. So their intentions and their uh, their incentives are nowhere near aligned to the incentive of the local consumer at the bottom. And by the time you get your power, and it's gonna be, especially for people that are larger, not our use cases, it's gonna be probably be six cents. The crazy thing about it is that energy is clearing because it's all public on the market for two cents, one cent, three cent, even sometimes negative. But that money doesn't get past the consumer because of all these administration fees and other fees. And we've had stories where we build a mining facility, Roy, we negotiate a brand new contract that takes the risk from the utility and brings it on to us, the, the market power risk. And that utility says, well, we got to keep our margin on this contract. So we're going to say your service fee, we're going to increase it by 400%. And we're a regulated utility. So you either can sign the contract. Or you can walk away. There's no negotiating. It it is a monopoly and it is disgusting. But you have to deal with it. And it's all like, hey, sorry about that. You're going to challenge us in court? Or are you going to just take it and and accept it and pay the bills? And that's the problem with the electricity industry today is that it doesn't work for the consumers. It's all about the powers that be and the the executives inside the businesses. And it's upsetting because it should be a great business that works for its community.
0: Absolutely. And like, if there is, because I I don't know, was it in Texas before? There was kind of shortages with electricity. Do you have a kind of backup generators? Don't even know if they're efficient. Like, but do you have a system in place that if the power goes down or is it just a case of, yeah, you just have to wait to get sorted?
1: It's just a case of you got to wait. If the power goes down, we're off. And that's because it's too expensive to build a generator, to use the generator because the cost of energy for that hour we're running would go up to like 20 cents a kilowatt hour when you use your own generator. And so usually the reason why we're down is two reasons. We turn off when the energy company says, hey, the power price is too high from what you wanted, what you were bidding it at. But the nice thing about it is we actually sell our rights into the market to someone else. So we get paid. We get paid to sell the energy back to the grid because every day, we buy the same amount of energy and we commit to that. And so in the energy markets, it's very valuable if you're always buying the same amount of energy and you have something called fixed load. We also turn off when it might be peak demand or when everyone else is using their power and there's a lot of carbon-based power plants online like natural gas and coal. We're turning off then as well because the energy is basically too expensive and we don't, instead of getting paid, we don't want to have to have a large bill so then we turn off completely down to a minimal amount. So we basically put all of our servers into sleep mode, just like you hibernate your your desktop computer, and we don't have to uh we don't have to keep them running because they're not actually doing the calculations anymore. And so they're all just in sleep mode, waiting for us to send another command to turn them all back on. And then very quickly we start making money again in under five minutes of turning back on. Excellent.
0: And with say. Obviously, electricity costs around the world are totally different. What's like, doesn't the country with the cheapest electricity have a competitive advantage over the rest of the world with mining? Oh, 100%. The countries that adopt Bitcoin mining,
1: that redefine their electric industry for demand response resources, resources who can turn off whenever they ask them and can buy cheap energy made from solar and wind and hydro that no one else is buying. Those countries are going to be the best for Bitcoin miners. In the United States, we do have a lot of cheap energy. But like I said, there's just a lot of bureaucracy between us and the market. And that bureaucracy is gets in the way and it makes the price inflated from what the real cost and true cost of that energy should be.
0: And with the, I mean, obviously it has to go to the net to the information for the processing and everything. So do you have... Wi-Fi system or fiber optics? And have you a backup for that as well if you've got some problem with that?
1: So we do have backups internet because that's more you know more necessary because if we don't have internet, then we don't have any type of, we uh, not making any money. We can have the power, but no internet. So we have two internet connections at every facility. One is going to be fiber or broadband. Um, and then the other one's going to be satellite. So Starlink internet connection. And so the Starlink is a backup. Um, And the fiber or the broadband is usually the main one. And you're you're running off of dual connections, so both connections at the same time. And if something happens, with one fails, the other one will switch over automatically and take all the rest of the load. Or if the other one fails, the same thing. And then we have multiple layers of switches and uh, firewalls and routers and servers to maintain redundancy. Because when it comes to Bitcoin mining, we really want to have a redundant system when it comes to all of our networking. So every site has redundant internet, redundant switches, redundant routers, redundant networking equipment, so that in the event of an issue with one of those, you don't have downtime because you are running a 24-7 operation.
0: Brilliant. And I mean, you mentioned the different kind of options, obviously. There's like 5 million big and then there's the 100 bucks going in. Where What's the kind of return on an investment starting from and what can it go up to?
1: Yeah, so that's a little bit harder question because I have to project in the future. And when it comes to uh, you know those type of requirements, I can't really project uh, well, but I would say that Bitcoin mining, what the premise is, the premise is, is that you're going to buy a mining machine. You're gonna take depreciation on that mining machine, which is gonna have a tax liability for us in the United States. You don't have to pay taxes on items you're depreciating so you can actually save money from paying taxes. That's number one benefit of mining Bitcoin. And then you're going to use the energy and mine Bitcoin at a discount to the price that it's trading. And so the most money is made in Bitcoin mining in a nine-month period. And that period is when Bitcoin price starts to go rapidly up and no one can deploy new mining machines or facilities fast enough. That's when you want to get into Bitcoin mining. You can lose a lot of money in Bitcoin mining by doing two things. One- Signing a high hosting contract where your energy is above 7, 8 cents, that's really going to be hard for you to maintain and be profitable. So make sure your energy contracts are lower, six, five, four cents, somewhere in that range. Number two, when you buy your mining machine, you want to make sure you're getting it when it's not in a massive hype cycle. When everyone else is rushing to the door to buy it, that's usually a time to sell your mining machines because the mining machine value fluctuates based on the amount of Bitcoin it can extract from the network, and the value of the Bitcoin. And so when the value goes crazy, and the amount of Bitcoin stays the same that you can extract, hypothetically, you think you have a great return. You bought a machine for $10,000, but if you bought a machine for $6,000 two years ago, you're now breaking even just today. So it's been two years, you're paying your power bill, you're now just breaking even on that machine. So if you bought a machine for $10,000, well, you lost money. So that's two years ago was we caught the bull market up. We got to $60,000. We went down and then we went even back up because profitability because of the China shutdown. And so mining is a game of timing and making sure you have cheap operating costs in order to make a return from
0: it effectively. And with the machines then, what's the kind of typical life cycle or does it totally vary? They So they will run as long as they're
1: profitable. You can fix parts on them, components on them. Let's say you have 100 machines. By year one, that customer can still have 100 machines, but maybe they only have 98 functioning. You know, two of them have are completely bad. They have all the bad components, and they've been parted out. But a machines will last for three, four, five, six years. We have We you know people that are running S9s. Those came out seven years ago when I was still in school. And they run. They run perfectly which is insane to think about, but they do. And so really a mining machine has a lifespan until it becomes unprofitable and then it goes to get recycled. And even if it becomes unprofitable, it's actually sometimes people just turn them off and then they wait for the price to appreciate and that moment, that nine month moment to happen again, and they turn them on and they make another more money on the nine months. And you can do that a few different cycles, probably two or three. And before that machine needs to be recycled and and, and discarded.
0: Uh, Is um, most of the processors coming from Taiwan or is it very around the world? Most of them are coming from TSMC in Taiwan. So,
1: yes, that's where a majority of the processors come from. There are some out of the Chinese semiconductor factories, some
0: out of Samsung as well, Um, but yeah, mostly out of TSMC. And is that a fair with kind of China and Taiwan? We hear a lot about that in the last kind of year or so. I mean, who knows what will happen, but like there's a fair there with that yeah if they if they invade, well, if they invade, it's not only
1: Bitcoin mining, you know, but it's every electronic that's effectively made there. So it would be a huge issue. Um, now obviously, I think China understands the value of these semiconductor facilities to the world and to themselves as well. So they're not going to damage them. So that is good that they are very you know protected in that sense where we say, yeah, there's a lot of money here. This is a very expensive asset. We don't want to damage it, you know, with any type of uh, weapons of mass destruction or weapons of destruction. So, uh, but yeah, they're very they're crucial to the economy. They're crucial to Bitcoin mining. And if something like that happened, well, the people that own Bitcoin miners would be in a very good position, and everyone who didn't have one wouldn't be able to really join because of the supply chain disruptions.
0: Is there? to kind of make sure your risk is minimized, is there insurance or do you recommend people have insurance for their miners' machines?
1: Great, great question. So there is insurance and we tell all of our customers to insure their machines, especially once they get above the, the $10,000 investment amount. You know, what right around there, that's kind of where it makes sense to go and start insuring stuff. And property insurance covers, you know, tornado damages, hurricanes, earthquakes, terrorists, all of that stuff. Usually you can't insure theft, though, with the Bitcoin miner, sadly, but you can insure most, you know, most other things. Um, there's also the ability to uh, business interruption insurance, stuff like that is very hard to get as a miner. Uh, project completion insurance is very hard to get because it touches crypto and uh, the insurance companies. They don't like crypto. Bankers don't like Bitcoin, so they try to keep away from it when it comes to their policies, but they will insure the physical machines for for damages, and and we do tell clients get your insurance, you know, make sure you're protected, and then also you can protect yourself by hedging your your Bitcoin exposure uh, with some futures on the CME or CBOE or uh, some long term you know long term futures to ensure that the Bitcoin price that you bought the miner at you're protecting from it going down significantly, uh, so you're actually shorting the market, and if it goes up, you're making more money with your miner, so you lose your short, but you yeah, know, that's the intention.
0: Okay, cool. And like, isn't, it's, is it all Bitcoin now? Or because you mentioned Ethereum before, but I presume when that went to proof of stake, it's not really worth it for people. But uh, do you use other ones or is it just a Bitcoin right now, baby?
1: Right now, Bitcoin is where 90% of our clients and ourselves mine. There's like some other coins that people mine, but mainly Bitcoin. And I started in Ethereum mining because. It was easier to get graphics cards and the ASIC market was still young and developing. And then ASICs back then also had a shorter lifespan. So it was really about getting them, plugging them in, running them. And then within two or three years, they were not viable anymore, where graphics cards could keep mining Ethereum for when it was all mining mineable. So that's how I started, but mainly Bitcoin now.
0: Brilliant. And just finally, because I like, I know that you've grown this massively, but I was looking at your social media, YouTube 3.72 million, but you've TikTok, you've like, you know, something like a half a million followers and 10 million likes, which is incredible. <laughs> how, how have you done that? Like have you any tips for people for actually growing that or why did you, where did you get into yeah. the TikTok?
1: So I got into social media because my friends, I've been making content for, I would say like five, six years, and they're really good at it. Some of them are so good where they can make a video on new accounts on YouTube and be at 250,000 followers within five videos. And each video is getting millions of views because, and I was able to learn from them. I was able to understand, okay, how does this work? And really YouTube and content is a storytelling. It's attention grabbing, it's hooks. It's a story that people resonate with. And over the years, we were developing stories about Bitcoin mining and about myself and about my journey. And we found that there's one script that does really well. And it just happened to be that we started taking it and modifying just a little bit. And that one video first got 2 million views, then it got 8 million views, we changed it a little bit. And then we did it professionally with actually an intern who was really good and really thoughtful. And he made a video that went ultra viral, got 37 million views on TikTok tens of millions of views on YouTube. And the video is interesting because it starts off with like, hey, this is me. This is JP Barrick. He bought Bitcoin in 2013. He bought this many Bitcoin. And it says like, instead, he could have bought 11 Lamborghinis. Now, first of all, who needs 11 Lamborghinis? No one does. But comparison of like, you could have done this, but he did this, just like people's mind. They love that. It resonates so much. And then they can like, oh, my God, he built this Bitcoin mine. Here's how much everything costs to build it. And they story, they're just entertained and they keep with it. And so we've noticed that that formula of like making content, where if you just take a simple formula of like, hey, when I was this years old or back in my day, I did this. If I would have done this, and if I would have not sold those Bitcoin, I could have done X, Y and Z, which, you know, you could do that with your house. You could do that with your, your pension fund, your stock account people seem to really be like oh this is great like who's this guy and so that that resonated and that went viral but for us we're always i'm trying to make educational content less viral content the viral content's nice but it's better to like share the value of why bitcoin mining why energy usage is important you know what's the what's the size of a solar farm a wind farm and a nuclear plant and the different energy that's produced so my intention is to educate people on energy and Bitcoin mining in their life and how they can make money from energy. But what gets views is uh, the clickbait stuff. And you know, you have to throw some of that in too to, to keep people around and get new people interested.
0: Listen, JP totally enjoyed our conversation.
1: You might let people know how they can get in contact with you. I did as well, Roy. And you can get in contact with me at mining store on Twitter, at John Paul Barrick on Instagram, and at JP Berrick on TikTok. Also available miningstore.com. Send us an email if you're looking to, uh, to get into Bitcoin mining. And I'll say just last thing is I will never ask you for crypto from my, my social media accounts. So there's scammers out there. Don't send me crypto. So if you get a message or a DM about my trading group, it doesn't exist. It's fake. Uh, so don't, don't do that. And uh, thanks again for the time, Roy.
0: No problem. So I make sure I put the link spot on the audio and the video. Perfect. That's all for The Crypto Podcast. You'll find all our episodes on thecryptopodcast.org. We're also on Bitchute YouTube. You'll find my four other podcasts along with the coach and forward slash podcast. Sure to give us a thumbs up, five-star rating, share with your friends, and make sure you check out JP's uh, TikTok and his uh, YouTube channel as well and give him a thumbs up and subscribe. I mean, he could do with another 10 million. (laughs) Until next week. Take (laughs) care.